installation of the Ferris Center events podcast series brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Okay, we're going to break the rules and I'm going to do two introductions to, uh, to Professor Roger Owen. One is the formal one which, you, which you've seen, which is too short which is that he is the former A.G. Mayer Professor at, of Middle East History at Harvard and Director of the, Middle East, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies there. He previously taught Middle East political and economic history at Oxford University, where he was also many times the Director of St. Anthony's College Middle East Center. He has published many books and written a regular column for the Arabic newspaper Al-Hayat. Now, the other way of introducing Roger is to imagine yourself in Versailles in 1919, where the, the policy makers there had very little knowledge like the library, if you had a library of, Middle, of on the modern Middle East in 1919, we both come from St. Anthony's where our warden wrote an excellent book on, 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 the, on the six months that changed the world, which is the negotiations at Versailles. And uh, <coughs> so we're talking now to the future leaders mm -hmm. of, of the Western world, yes. so that's why it's relevant. And... and uh, so if you imagine what was available to them then, it was a few travelers' tales, the Bible, and some reports from, from their, from their uh, um, consuls or, or, or some merchants on, on the ground. Uh, there were some sophisticated reports from Istanbul, but the, re the rest is very anecdotal, and, and uh, the, the, nothing that you can compare to the, cu the current knowledge, which includes the, the field of modern Middle East studies, which started in the 1940s, uh, well, at least in the po post-World War II, it didn't exist before, and where Oxford was one of the main centers. So it's Oxford, LSE, uh, Oxford, SOAS, and, and uh, Princeton at the time. With, uh, and where... If you look, if you visit uh, Professor Owen in his in his uh, office at Harvard, and I posted that picture on Facebook, you will see that behind him there are two shelves from wall to wall of theses that he supervised or examined or was part of, and that's a small sample of his students and the people he's influenced. But it's also a small sample of how much we know now compared to 100 years ago in the field. And uh, in the, uh, 100 years ago, they could make decisions far easier than we can now with, with, with all the knowledge we have. And it's, this year is the 50th anniversary of the Middle East Studies Association. The meeting is in Boston, and they are replaying uh, a video of a debate between Edward Said and uh, Bernard Lewis uh, in that in that meeting that which happened in, which happened in Oxford in, in Boston thirty years ago, and uh, uh, Roger and I will be introducing the the, the debate and mo moderating it. So we are looking at Middle East studies from a really wide lens with Roger Owen and his, we're looking forward to his memoirs that are coming out. And I will have the link very soon because many people have been trying to find the link yes. and I will have it very soon sure. and will distribute it. Roger, thank you so much thank for you. coming well, and you're very welcome. Thank you for coming. And uh, um, I'm not, well, I suppose I am used to autobiographical note mode, but usually in the Temple Bar, 1688, Massachusetts Avenue, a nice pub come cafe where you can find me from time to time, so 
if you feel like coming along. Um, you can ring up and see if I'm there, because they know me well enough first, just to make sure. Um, but this, I think this is explaining why I've, begun, why I've written a form of uh, professional autobiography is the purpose of this short talk, to get your feedback from it. First, the notion of the book. Now, the book as a thing is a very, as we know, is a very problematic notion at the moment. And um, Bassam Haddad, who runs Jadalia from offices in Washington, everybody heard of Bassam Haddad? I have an entrepreneurial figure who I thought was Syrian, but his father is Lebanese. Do we call him? We call him Greater Syrian, perhaps we do. Um, who, one of the things he wants to do is have electronic books. So the status of my, uh, it, of my autobiography as a book is, I think, if you buy it, at some step you can both buy a hard cover with a very nice, with a nice actual cover, dust jacket, with a picture of me on it. I'm very pleased with the picture. Uh, but you also get a kind of companion. You get interviews with me on video, and you get an electronic version and so on. So it's a new form of dealing with this thing called the book and how one sells it and how one tries to get undergraduates to buy it. I mean, it, it's, it's, much e it's very easy to teach, or it will be very easy to teach, because it is online. So you don't have to provide Xerox copies or anything if such things exist anymore. So that's, that's, that's where my one way in which my... Um, uh, autobiography, my autobiography, which is, um, I shall explain, it's my professional life. So that's the next bit about it. But that's why one of the reasons why it might be interesting, in that it does, it does, it is available in forms, and it'll be very interesting to see consumers' reports about how people deal with it and how people teach it and what they make of it. Perhaps even how you cite it. I have absolutely no idea in references and so on. Then, um, why am I writing about my working life? Oh, do interrupt anyway. I should have said that. Perhaps you do anyway. Put your hand up or shout or something like that at any stage. Um, the, the next most important thing about, to know about me is that I was born in 1935, which is a very long time ago, and I'm, allowed, I'm 81, and sometimes I feel very old, and sometimes I don't, but anyway. To be born in 1935 was a very important moment. My parents were anticipating the Second World War at that stage. There was a great deal of anxiety surrounding. As we get to 37 and 38, it was absolutely, with the rise of Hitler, it was absolutely clear that there was going to be a war at some stage. Um, and various people did various things in order to avoid it. Um, we moved to the countryside because it, I think it was assumed at that stage that uh, that the German bombers would get through, that was the idea, and all Britain's major cities would be destroyed in the first in the blitz, which turned out happily not to be true. Bombing from the air isn't as effective as everybody imagined, but the slogan in those days was the bombs will always get through. But then I survived the war and I got increasingly interested in the world. It was a global war, and I used to read newspapers about it the war in Asia and the war here and there. So it was a crash course in knowing about the world, which I don't think would have happened before in quite that way if, it, if we weren't engaged. And then came the United Nations, with which my father was involved. He was in the British Foreign Office and was in the Preparatory Commission and was involved in building the post-Second World War American order, Bretton Woods, convertible currencies, all the kinds of things that went to make the order that is now disappeared, or to some extent disappeared, or has to be rejigged and so on. So it was just very lucky for me to be in the middle of all this. And then the next thing that happened was <coughs> we had national military service between 1949 and 1959 in Britain, because it was anticipated, we were anticipating there was the Cold War, and there was a real, very real feeling that at some stage, I think in September, when the ground is hard, the Russian tanks would come and sweep over Europe. And so I was in, I was in the army, 
and luckily was sent to the island of Cyprus at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Um, we were involved in arms smuggling. It was a time when the uh, part of the Cypriot population was trying to join Greece under the, Arch under the leadership of a gentleman called Archbishop Macarius. And we were I was involved in providing radar coverage and interception of possible arms smuggling. And so that was very exciting, being a soldier at that stage. At the end, no, it was the, it was the end of colonialism. It was clear you know, that the lives were being lost because mm -hmm. um, you know, they hadn't got around to negotiating the future of Cyprus. That happened just a bit later. But, uh, so that, that was that. And then I discovered that Nicosia Airport was only 45 minutes by air from Tel Aviv. And so I used, and very close to Cairo, so I used my time and then I got myself demobilized from the army and went around the Middle East. So I began to take an interest in that period. When I first went to Egypt, the NASA revolution <coughs> of 1952 was only three years old mm -hmm. and so on. So I was not to know that at the time, but it was a very privileged moment in which I was in on the ground floor of the beginning of post, the post-colonial Middle East. So that's what that that's why I think I have something to say. I've witnessed to all kinds of things, and um, one could do all kinds. I was telling somebody before I persuaded my wife, my first wife, that we should have a honeymoon in Libya. She was. We had the country to ourselves. There were only two million people in Libya at that time, and two PhDs in the National Bank. And so, you know, you, you, I began to get an, the excitement of travel. And it builds up into a process of how you know about some other part of the world. I think we know now from Edward Said and other people that the Middle East is, well, all kinds of people. The Middle East is, an, is basically a strategic concept. That what the Middle East is, in fact, what we call the Middle East, is still how um, um, the Middle East Command in Cairo in 1943 and 44 conceived of the Middle East and the connections go back to that. Um, but it did seem to me important that if I was to know about this thing called the Middle East, I should travel to every country and try and try and develop contacts. And one of the best things I think I did was to live for a year in Cairo in the early 60s and then live a year in Beirut in the late 60s and that beginning with that what's the difference between Cairo and Beirut what's the difference between Egypt and Syria all these kinds of things began to suggest themselves not too much about North Africa because we left that to the French it was divided people who spoke English and Arabic studied the eastern part of the Mediterranean. People who knew French and Arabic studied North Africa. But we were lucky because France was still in Oxford. Um, Albert Hurani, with whom I studied, had a reputation for studying the modern Middle East, whereas in Germany and France at that stage, and in the days of Orientalism, people studied texts and they studied periods not before the present one, the golden age, everybody went on. And then there was decline and all this, and the view of civilizations. Um, and so that's how, I, that, that's how I then began to question the assumptions on which Middle East studies, Orientalist studies was based and was one of the editors of something called the Review of Modern Middle East, Middle East Studies, which um, began to challenge the notion of the Bernard Lewis notion that um, East is East, West is West, everybody in the East has is backward in some kind of way, everybody in the East is much too preoccupied with religion, everybody in the East is fuddy-duddy text people and not getting involved in what is going on. And So I was one of the first people to try by challenging the old way of studying the Eastern part of the Mediterranean and the, the Islamic world, um, and then going on to use a kind of combination of notions of imperialism, notions of unequal power, and political economy to try and provide an alternative way 
of studying the Middle East, which um, also um, in, it, it involved um, a kind of practice, I think, what, what you do to study the Middle East. In a se I mean, we were always comparing ourselves. There, there was Middle Eastern studies, there was Russian studies, there was Chinese studies, and so on and so on. Um, how we were, how what we were doing was like and different, and how how one set about studying another part of the world. Um, and I think, as I say, the key was very much notions of unequal power, notions of um, of challenging notions of backwardness, challenging notions of. But you, there was one path to development which involved industrialization, and that involved taxing the population, and that involved this, that, and the other. All these kinds of things were in play at that stage. Um, so that's how I became interested and how I started going about and had a plan, and realized that, um, you know, what, it, what, is it, what is it like to study some system other than your own, of course. One of the things to do is study states. We think we, we know, so how, how are states, states organized, how are regimes organized, playing around with the notion of authoritarianism and so on, which to the NASA state, borrowing ideas from, mainly from Latin America, about the military. <coughs> and there I had a particular in, because most of my colleagues said, I haven't been in the army, I don't know anything about the army. And I had, Having been in the army, I had some sense of how armies operate, how they think of themselves, how they, how colleagues treat each other, hierarchies and so on and so on. So I also had an in with that as far as that was concerned. Um, and now just a few words about lessons before we come on to uh, the discussion period. Um, there was a time <coughs> when I was working on the cotton industry in Egypt, the, cotton, the production of cotton in Egypt, when I think I knew more about Egyptian history than anybody in Egypt. The Egyptians only who studied their own history either studied ancient history or they studied the Ottoman period, but they didn't have much to say beyond Muhammad Ali. And so you have to be careful if you go around knowing more about, for a brief while, about the history of a country which is not yours and where you are a visitor. And I'm happy to say that that has been partly through the help of my students like Khalid Fahmi and so on. They've found alternative ways of using the extraordinary riches in the Cairo archives and so on and so on in order to develop alternative ways of thinking <coughs> about Egyptian history, social history, and so on, which has left me far behind, so I can't do that anymore. But still, I'm a visitor. Nobody asked me to study Egypt or anywhere else. Nobody asked me to go and be in Beirut. So there's a kind of, uh, there's also a kind of etiquette, I think, one has to do if one studies somewhere other than oneself. And, one, and, and be careful and recognize red lines and susceptibilities and don't go around saying that things are better organized or if only the one of the early things when I went to Greece long ago and I saw buildings being built by hand and I said you know if only they had pulleys and hoists and so on and my Greek friend said well you know you have to understand that this provides work for people you, know, you can't just go I learned very early imposing your own patterns, your own ways of how people should develop. And things change, of course. I mean, mysteriously now, industrialization isn't the way ahead. Um, and I think this has become very exciting. Um, I didn't think I was going to say this, but I'll just say a bit about the fact that in places like Egypt and societies where it's very difficult sometimes for women to get out of the house unchaperoned and so on, with the, with the internet and everything else, you can sit at home as um, an Egyptian woman. You don't have to worry about chaperoning. And you can join the world that, you can join the larger world of globalization that way. And you can make your own connections and your own um, 
contribution to IT and concepts and programming and all kinds of things, um, which wasn't the case. Where the question was, you know, how did women fit into factory society, and was there any um, jobs available to them, secretaries and receptionists and other things? So, also, I've this is in my 60 years of studying the Middle East, there have also been changes of that kind. Well, there I'll leave it, I think, and wait for questions, and uh, I hope I've raised enough, including uh, oh, um, uh, oh yes, just one final thing, uh, the global and the local, and how you become a Middle East expert in that process. And I think as a result of field studies and things that came out of the Second World War and financing and so on. I think to become not some, an expert, but to begin to study some other part of the world, I think we th now think that you have to live there for two years, some part of it. Mm. You have to learn at least one language. Um, you know, th there are various things which are basic to being an area studies person. Um, but we now also have to tie that in with global history because of the more and more I'm beginning to think that it doesn't make sense to study places like the Middle East or the Far East or China in isolation. You have to fit that into larger historical processes. So I think the global, the local, how much you know, if you're organizing courses, how much you pay attention to larger forces and how, you, how much you pay attention to the specifics on the ground, and that's the challenge for the organization of old area studies is how to make sure that the global and the local are integrated and that the students are able to pursue both, at least both, um, in some degree of detail. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Um, I wanted to, to, to ask what, uh, to launch the first question, it's, I know it's abuse of power, isn't it? It's all about the abuse of power. In, in Unequal power. Unequal power, <laughs> yes. Um, there's a trend in trying to push people, certainly hmm. we are in, 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 in a, at the Fletcher School, we are in a place like that, to push people to study policy-relevant yes. issues and uh, and uh, Away from from the ivory tower, uh, mm. and and also uh, there was a, a huge critique of the whole field of Middle Eastern studies uh, in in uh, after September 11, that the that nobody warned mm. of the possibility of the rise of such such uh, a threat mm. from from the region, and this has had a huge impact on. On the on the, on on the way the uh, the field evolved yes. and and split and uh, uh, and and recently uh, we we almost are obsessed with ISIS. We think that uh, I mean certainly outside the the Faris Center, uh, you would get the impression that there is nothing else in the Middle East mm -hmm. but ISIS mm -hmm. from. Bangladesh to Marrakesh, it's mm -hmm. it's all it's all ISIS and and also the shadow of the, the interpretation of the history of Iraq. All these issues that mm -hmm. with, with towards with, with the push to uh, to, to uh, uh, be policy relevant uh, have resulted in more confusion than than clarity, in mm -hmm. my view. What, what, what well, yes, I mean I've always thought that um, that scholarship shouldn't get involved in policy, um, basically. I've also said that um, I've always and strongly believe that if you're a historian, you have greatest difficult you have the greatest difficulty understanding the past, you have the greatest understanding greatest difficulty understanding the present, that it you shouldn't predict or you shouldn't use historical knowledge in order to predict. Because then uh, one of the many things happens, it becomes cyclical and people say, oh, well, you know, something like ISIS has happened before or 
you know, it's a bit like this or a bit like that or even worse, this is what Muslims do when they haven't got better things to on their mind or something of that kind. Um, so I think if you if I think you have to decide who you are. And if you are a historian, I think you stay away from policy and you stay away from Washington and and you try and do your history in a scholarly way. If you want to be a policy person, then you become something you are in international relations or something of that kind, peace studies. And that's perfectly okay. But that's not what I do or I feel comfortable doing. And um, I think there's a sense, too, you, you know when people are saying, have said the same thing ten times before or a hundred times before. You know, American policy should be this or that or the other. There's a kind of lack of intellectual sparkle if you're in the policy business. That, it's okay. I mean, lots of people learn Arabic to go to Washington and find jobs in from Harvard and everywhere else, but uh, it's not what I do. Right. Uh, it was fascinating to listen to uh, to your presentation, and one thing that's very striking uh, when you look at an older generation of scholars is the fact that they don't feel obligated to over-specialize. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the problems right now in the academic world is uh, this uh, scientific pretense to specialization mm -hmm. and over-specialization mm -hmm. where people tend to lose track of the bigger picture. And uh, in my own field uh, of specialization, which is roughly political science, I, uh, I was struck by the kind of attack on area studies, mm -hmm. uh, whereby uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a grad student and, and afterwards, the, the general attitude was that there are some quote-unquote scientific tools, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, rational choice, whatever, and then uh, the younger scholars were all pressured mm -hmm. for career reasons to, to, to go along with these, uh, with these trends. And I think the thing that was lost was the more old-fashioned uh, uh, kind of generalist uh, approach which allows people to roam broadly Mm -hmm. And and I think this is uh, I think uh, it, it, my, my my question basically it's well, what are your thoughts on some of the recent trends that you must have seen in your final years at Harvard although as a historian you were probably less exposed to that than in some of the other academic fields I think well I think if you are in a place for a long time and there's an opportunity to get to know people I think it depends very much how Harvard how universities are organized. I mean, take the famous Samuel Huntington, who was one of my colleagues. I got to know him only because we were on the same committee. Um, and then I became a close observer of Samuel Huntington. And he was very hip, and he wrote a book called The Clash of Civilizations at just the right moment. Because he wanted to be heard in Washington. That's one game. You, know, you, want, to be, you want to be heard, you want to certainly clear in French. Um, and that, some people do that. And, clear when they're doing it, I think. I don't blame them, I mean, for career reasons or even uh, what in French would be called amour propre, some, some sort of self-worth. Some people want to be heard, some people want to write op-ed pieces in the New York, in the New York Times. Um, and, so, and I just happened to, um, luckily I met the publisher of Hyatt in, um, Al Hyatt in Lebanon in 1988 and decided that my audience was an Arab audience and I would use my columns to try and explain the United States to the people of the Arab world. It's a kind of cultural interpretation that goes on which I'm most comfortable with. Um, and I, also I think in England we are, we discount ambition. In fact we regard ambition as suspect. <laughs> so no, it's clear I expect everybody knows who Nicholas Burns was, and it was very clear to anybody who knew Nicholas Burns at the Kennedy School that he was preparing to be Hillary Clinton's foreign policy advisor, or maybe Secretary of State. We'll have to wait and see whether she wins the election. So one can observe um, ambition in others and sort of fit it into the general picture, and it explains why certain things are happening and certain things are not happening and so on. Um, 
there's a poem that I quoted at Albert Harani's um, by Samuel Daniel, an English poet of the late, the late 15th, early 16th century, something to the effect, he that of such a height have built his mind and reared the dwelling of his thoughts so strong as nought or something or something or other, he can look at the rest with unwet eye, he doesn't cry, and not venture to impiety. Be cool, you know, be cool about it. And the world is full of various people and some people. And, but as far as my own teaching is concerned, I want people, I'm concerned with the kind of an understanding of Middle East structures just for their own, for its own sake. Um, not that it has any kind of uh, focus. Yeah. So, as I was listening to you say that you don't believe historians should be involved in policy making, it occurred mm. to me that is it a similar predicament of what Plato outlined with the philosopher and the king, where the philosopher should be the king, and, mm. and in this case, um, but doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I feel like as we're looking at the modern situation in the Middle East, maybe a lot of policymakers in the West don't have a good enough grasp of history and so I guess in that vein if I could ask you to sort of shift into a policy predictive mode or as far as your own personal perspective on maybe at least 20th, mm. 19th and 20th century towards modern day as far as some of the issues of, of sort of the paths towards secularism and then fundamentalism where I guess where do you see us going, and specifically, what is the U the West's role? And and I think, and I would tie into that. <clears throat> you also said you were a guest, and and one of the things I wrestle with is, do we have certain values in the West, and are there certain values among either moderate Muslims or secular uh, leaders that that are, and I'll say this undiplomatically, we're a school of diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Are they in fact superior to some of the values of fundamentalists who would hark back to 632 as the ideal yeah. year? And 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 if so, how do we how do we diplomatically? Is there a place for the West and for moderates to pr promote those values? No, that's of course a terribly difficult subject. I mean, I think one of the things I learned from dear old Sam Huntington was the third wave. I think we were in that. Democracy was a very difficult thing, and it came in waves, and then it, and then it disappeared. Or, and I feel that even more strongly. You know, that I come from a country that had its civil war in 19, um, sorry, in 1642. Some some countries haven't had civil wars. Some countries, you know, that that period isn't over yet. Um, the Westminster-style democracy of of the rules that involve of, of, of kind of shared understandings of not going too far is an extremely difficult thing to learn. I mean, better, I think, than the... Uh, I look at sometimes at the uh, architecture of parliaments, and I prefer the Westminster style where you have government and opposition and you have to have rules, you know, and they're two swords lengths apart, and you have to course, talk about my honourable friend, as opposed to the French model, which is you have the left and the right, but they're all there, um, uh, and they're different rules of, and people get up and make speeches, and so on and so on. One of my favorite characters from Egyptian history is Saad Zaglul, the uh, great nationalist of 1919, who knew that he, after the Waft, uh, uh, he, he knew um, uh, after the initial thing of the Waft that he would never be allowed to be the prime minister. So he became the speaker of the Egyptian parliament, and he instructed the, the politicians in the parliament, and he said, you know, chaps, there's no point standing up and giving to our lecture, which they were prone to do. You know, keep it short, remember what the point is, where the audience is, you know. So you also need a kind of shepherding process by people who understand the difficulties of democracy, I think, to get you there. Uh, but then it can all be swept away again. People talk about democracy all the time. Um, just they talk about peace all the time, but uh, um, 
it's it's very it's very difficult to practice, and I think one has to bear that in mind. And as a foreigner, be as helpful as possible, and remind people gently of historical precedent, and but not become too upset and say, "You foolish people who, you know, like Egyptians, really want a CC kind of person to appear every now and again to tell them what to do." And uh, but it, I remember just another anecdote. A gentleman called Isaac Diwan, who's yep. Tunisian, who who predicted what after Tahrir, he said there will be elections in Egypt. The elections will be won by the Muslim Brothers because they're the best organized. The Muslim Brothers will have a government. After a year, they will make a mess of things, and then it, the pro it stopped at that stage. And lo, they did make a mess of things, and then Sisi appears. So, you know, in, in the um, you. It, it, it's unwise to be too enthusiastic, but you still have to look at those moments and see how one can help, be helpful, and um, and address concrete problems of doing things. And this is not to say. I mean, another of my hobby horses is water and drought, and the ideological squabbling that goes on in the Middle East very often. Nobody talks about the fact that there's no going to, that Nile is going to dry up and there's going to be water problems all over the place, and that uh, I mean I think it's hard though for it is for many people in the Arab world. You have to learn water stuff from the Israelis. I think I think every drop of water in Israel is used and reused about ten times or something of that kind. You have to be careful with water. You have to tax water. And so that's another, you know, um, I think one has to lift one's eyes up from time to time and look at the basic problems that are being faced, not to speak of what you do with educa an educational system that only produces bureaucrats or only generates jobs in the civil service. What do you do with those people? Do they all go on boats to Italy or somewhere? I mean large forces are at work in the Middle East, which have nothing to do with Arab-Israeli things, but to my, they're much more basic about what it is to like on the, live on the other side of the Mediterranean from um, Europe, from Western Europe. <coughs> so I was also struck by your comment that... Can everybody hear? Sorry. Can you hear? Yes. <coughs> I was also struck by your comment that perhaps Middle Eastern scholars shouldn't aim to be policymakers unless you're trying to end up in Washington. Yes. Because I personally was always under the impression that the whole kind of point of studying the Middle East was to create more informed policymakers, mm. to create literature or research that would prevent us from kind of repeating mistakes. Mm. And I was also struck by your comment that, you know, to look at history is to create a cycle and to mm. kind of create that self-fulfilling prophecy. So I guess I'm wondering what you see as the role then of Middle Eastern academics who do not want to necessarily be in Washington, but how do you prevent it from kind of becoming an echo chamber where you have these specialists in the region and they're all talking to each other and they're listening to each other, yes. but what's their role more broadly? Uh, yes. You mean the policymakers in Washington? No, I mean or, the or people who don't necessarily, who don't want, necessarily to want to be policymakers, yes. but who I was always assuming would inform policy through their work. So if that's not the path yeah. that you foresee, what is the path then? Well, I, my feeling is that both Britain and America are quite well represented. I mean, I, I, there are abroad in their foreign services, and they have the, the American foreign service. They used to send their people to my colleague Bill Grenar in Tunis to learn Arab, colloquial Arabic, and you know, they they understand what you. I think the Foreign Office understand. They, they the State Department understands. Um, what what is needed in order to to, to uh, make a, to give valuable advice to the policymakers, and insofar as we, Nadim and I teach people like you who are going to be foreign service officers, that's part of our job, I think, to make sure that they have an understanding which yields useful information about how things really work in the Middle East. Um, so. I think that that's how I, I think I would begin to ask that. Um, and then if, I don't know, I was asked to testify before 
congressional committee at some stage. It was the most boring thing I ever did. I mean, I, you know, you sat there as a large empty chamber, nobody seemed to be there. The, the important people are the staffers, I think, you have to get to know. If you really want to influence policy, you have to go, you have to find Kerry or somebody, I mean, one of our local representatives uh, in, in Massachusetts, go down and talk to the, the people who the young, there's, there will always be a young person who does Middle East for any major senator. And these are the people you want to, the, you know, the House of Representatives turns over too quickly, but it's the senators you want to influence. And, uh, you know, I think Kerry is extremely well informed about things that go on in the Middle East. There's not much I could tell him now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, my name is Mari Elias. I'm a first-year MOL student. Thank you so much for being here and um, enlightening us with your wisdom. So I was born in Pakistan and grew up in the United States. And I think one of the things that resonated with me with how you introduced yourself was that you, know, you were born in the 1930s. And having seen so much in your life, you're able to offer a new sort of wisdom. Um, my question is that growing up in government classes, we learn about these different types of government, mm. you know, autocracies. And, um, monarchies mm -hmm. and democracies and oligarchies and there's an immediate connotation that anything that's not a democracy is not like good mm -hmm. or like it's not as powerful or people mm -hmm. empowered um, but in the Middle East where we do have existing you know monarchies like Saudi Kingdom Saudi Arabia Kingdom of Jordan and we have histories where there have been empires that have been successful in a decentralized form of power through the caliphates or sultanates, whatever. How do you reconcile this concept of, you know, you mentioned being a Westerner and coming in and mm -hmm. learning the language to feel a little bit more localized and a part of the culture to mm -hmm. really fully understand it, but that level of like distancing yourself and saying, okay, these concepts of modernism and Westernization and democracy. Can, are good and they work in certain regions, but, have, but there's other models that also work. And mm. you know, particularly during the time that you may have grown up, World War II, etc., there were regimes that were you know totalitarian, etc. Granted, they had all the negative things, but I think the, the lens through which we learn history is that that, that divide is automatically created in our brain. That you know, monarchies mm. are bad. The Brits, you know, we got our mm -hmm. independence from the British, and monarchy. You never really think of monarchy as a good thing anymore. And, I'm just wondering if your work has shed any perspective on appreciating different forms of government and different parts oh, of the world. Oh, well, yes. I mean, I think you have to live in the capital city and try and work out how things are done. And this begins, sometimes you need to, um, you know, the wasta is the Arabic word in Egypt for these kinds of things, um, how, where you, how it is that you manage things. I mean, I think this, whatever, was it six degrees of affinity or something rather? I sometimes play that game. Of separation. Was it? <coughs> six degrees of separation. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Beirut, it's easy peasy. Mm. You know immediately who to go to for whatever, or you know somebody who knows something. Yeah. Large country like Egypt, it's probably somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody rather. But you, you learn how to influence and help and suggest and get information. One thing I've learned is that if you want information, you have to have information. So, you know, it's always an exchange. So you have to um, know enough about countries in order to engage in a political conversation. And you, you say, do you know that? And they say, um, I don't know that, but do you know this? And so it becomes much more personal and local. It's not like knocking on the door of the Minister of the Interior or something in Egypt and saying, take me to your the most important person, because of course you'll get absolutely nowhere at all. You, you have to understand that there are other ways of dealing with these kinds of things in, in less formal ways. And it is very often links of connections that will connect you. And then through doing that and sitting around, I mean, I think you have to find out where people eat. Beirut is very nice because you, know, soon you sit in a cafe and sooner or later an important person comes by and you get some sense of what people do after hours. And gossip is extraordinarily important. 
it has a bad name in England, gossip. But uh, this is where you get the information about mm. how things are going on and what people are thinking about and why they weren't in Parliament last year because they were getting divorced <coughs> or something or other, or having an operation or you, know, you need to know the doctors. So that's I think that's how I feel about operating, and that may not be answering your thing. I did mention, sorry, one other thing. Um, I have a student now who's working on what was called Black September, which at that moment in, in Oman in September <coughs> 1970, when it looked as though the Palestinians, the King Hussein was done for, <coughs> the Palestinians were going to take over. And I was in, I was in Oman at that stage, and having been invited to a Palestinian conference and was in, saw the fighting going on all around me. Two things I learned about that. One is, well, I now know actually through 50 years after the, the files are open and you can see who was advising and what was going on and actually I realized that I had a pretty good idea of being there. It wasn't so complicated. It wasn't, you know, it, there wasn't somebody, some mastermind, there was the usual history of accident and organization and this happening and that happening. Um, so that bolstered my sense of that I was doing the right kind of thing. You know, it's, you, you have to get a sense of what is likely to happen and what is less likely to happen and that involves being on the ground. And uh, Oh, and the other thing is I meant to say one of wisdom you talk about. I mean, I do feel I'm a bit wise. One of my bits of wisdom is never ask direct questions because you'll always be told what you want to know. What, what you know, what the, 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 what the uh, person you're asking what thinks you want to know and what you really want to know. Travel in taxis, service taxis in Beirut, if you, and over here. Sit anywhere and and if you're a foreigner, it will be assumed that you don't you don't understand Arabic. It's a wonderful situation to be in. <laughs> and then you listen and you overhear, and occasionally you can sort of inject, uh, mention the word "cc" and see what happens in the Egyptian taxi. <laughs> the degree of whether people are talking, whether they're afraid, all that kind of thing. So go and overhear and listen when you've got some basic understanding. Yes. Um, thank you very much. I have three questions. Um, and they regard the broad social sciences, not just history, mm, yeah. actually, uh, political science, possibly. Um, you uh, strike me as well as uh, a person, a scholar that spent an enormous amount of time in the field, in mm -hmm. the countries that you're studying. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm afraid that uh, nowadays, um, the senior uh, endeavor would dramatically reduce the life expectancy of a scholar mm -hmm. uh, to go study Libya, Syria, Iraq. Uh, we too dangerous. Yes. Yes. Uh, let alone diplomats, uh, who you mm -hmm. argued are informed about the countries. Yes. But even when they're deployed there, now they're in compounds. They don't yes. hang out anymore. They don't go yes. to cafes. They don't meet yes. regular people. Yes. But those who are already within the state apparatus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the ones that were educated abroad, yes. oftentimes. But the scholars face a similar problem. So my question, if you were a scholar today of social sciences, mm -hmm. what strategy would you adopt to get the necessary knowledge and affinity to the local understandings of the reality uh, that you need? There are still places you can go to. Where it, you, know, you can go to Saudi Arabia and in certain, I don't think you're in any great danger. You know, there are places where you're not in any immediate danger. I've always thought the key to the... You have to know where the road to the airport is if you're a foreigner. <laughs> and if you can get to the airport, then you fly out. And of course, you leave all the poor, unfortunate people behind. But before you, before you take the road to the airport, there are listening posts where... You know, I mean, I, I think it's pretty safe to be in Amman somewhere. There are, and that you just have to go there. Um, it used to be safe in Istanbul. I'm not quite sure whether it is anymore. Um, it certainly isn't safe in in Damascus or Aleppo or anywhere like that. Pretty okay in, in Baghdad. 
So in the eastern bit, you, you know, everything is, I believe, with ISIS in the sense of we were against Sykes-Picot and it was, they were all joined together and the imperialists came and created separate states and so on. Um, but everybody, everybody is close enough. You know, you have a cousin in Baghdad. The links, the family links, the political links exist all over the Fertile Crescent, I think, and one can make use of those even if one particular bit is too dangerous at any particular stage. Uh, well, I have something to add, which is now you don't even have to go there because through social media and communication, it's you can you can do a lot from outside to. That's the overhearing bit, I suppose. Yeah. Instead of going in a taxi, you just the voyeurism. Yes. Yes. And it's bits and pieces. It's like it's detective work. That's what I like too, putting things together, trying to find out. You know why think what you could, first what is happening and then why it's happening and then what does it mean? I suppose these are the three questions we are interested in. A second question is: uh, You certainly observed um, a phenomenon of increasing uh, demand for uh, supposedly scientific rigor in the research of uh, social sciences <coughs> and the modelization of reality and uh, the method becoming more important than the actual yeah. uh, qualitative analysis. Yeah. Um, so what would be your advice to young scholars who are confronted with a reality like this? Uh, and if you predict this uh, new trend to persist or a way into uh, less importance? Um, no, I mean, I think that will go on because not because it's intellectually satisfying, but because there's a lot of money in doing this kind of stuff. And people think that there's their jobs to be had by having a kind of sense of international trends and so on. Um, so I, I, I don't see that going away particularly. I'm just, just I, but I do think it's not any old thing that happens. And I'm a firm believer in structures, you know, that there are ways mental structures and institutional structures which do allow the politics of many parts of the Arab world to be reasonably predictable. And then when you get oil and so on, you know, you have a decent election in, in Iraq, I mean pretty well conducted, um, which was representative of public opinion at that time. And then suddenly you get a huge split between Sunnis and Shi'is and you get a huge amount of corruption associated with the anticipation of oil wealth and so, but, you know, the, these things aren't surprising. You just have to um, understand the limitations that people in power have, the expectations they have, the kinds of um, ambitions they have for their family, um, where they are in the civil service, whether they're public appointment, whether they're, there's a merit an attempt at, at a meritocracy where people are appointed on merit rather than family connections. You know, after a while you can begin to find your way and you can say in any situation, this is more likely to happen than that for this and that reason, I think. That's where I want to end up. You mean using common sense rather than an algorithm? Yes. Oh, yes. That's, uh... I don't understand about algorithms, but... Uh... <laughs> No, well, that seems you, kind, you, kind of magic. Uh, uh, algorithm is supposed to replace understanding. Yes. So you don't have to understand. <laughs> yes, yes. You can do it. You can do it by getting the data, entering it into the model. Yes. So your job is is to just go through the process, yes. and and anybody can do it. Yes. That's the. Uh, well, that's the world in which uh, yes, yeah. laptop <laughs> laptops talk to each other. I think instead of real people. That's right. Yes. Yeah, there's a French economist actually who was killed along with the Charlie Hebdo, that crowd massacre, mm -hmm. who had the great line, which is, uh, the bigger the model, the stupider it is. Uh -huh. and, right. <laughs> yes. and whereas the underlying assumption of a lot of the mm -hmm. kind of the trendy stuff yes. is to assume yes. that bigger is better. Yes. And the difference between information and understanding yes. is, is... Yes. And there is the unpredictable. Yeah. I'm sure mm -hmm. most people die with a look of surprise on their face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've always assumed I'm going to be run over by a car 
<laughs> proceeding backwards at some sort of wrong way through a one-way street in Beirut. I think that's as, as like an end for me as any other. <laughs> so if, if there are three types of Middle East scholars, one is the one you described, mm-hmm. um, whom I would say is this sort of Albert Harani type mm-hmm. scholar. Then there's the Edward Said uh, scholar who is who is the public intellectual. Mm-hmm. So every every person pursuing uh, studies there are, are doing it because they're doing it for the cause mm-hmm. because they're they have a, a mission and 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 a and and a, um, a purpose mm-hmm. in addressing the mm-hmm. and then there is the the uh, policy hack mm-hmm. which is way down there in the Kennedy School mm-hmm. which is very different from what they teach you at the, mm-hmm. at, at the Middle East Center mm-hmm. uh, you're losing out Who's, who's losing out? I'm losing out. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the first model is losing out. Oh, the first model. The first model of the person who is more modest, know, uh, understands more, but, but knows a lot more, but is more modest about what, he, what mm-hmm. he knows, and has no ambition to um, uh, influence as a... Uh, policy in, yes. in that sense. Except at one remove. Except at one remove. I mean, so, you know, so, I, so, so I talk to these young people and then they, you know, some of them become academics and some go off. So yeah. That's the, the best one can do. That's the best one can do. Yeah. Yes. And, and think about wisdom too and, and, and be a bit unconventional and try and think your way into these societies and how they work and see if you can make limited predictions about what is more or less likely to, ha- to happen next, and what is unlikely. Um, and But also do that, oh, I haven't said that, you have to do this in association with people from the region. From the region, yeah. It has to be done in partnership. And that's the problem because so many uh, Middle Eastern universities have been taken over by the state and so on, so, and they don't have enough money and they don't have libraries and all this kind of thing. So this business of m- maintaining working relationship with Middle Eastern intellectuals is extremely difficult. True. Um, but that's, that, that's how it, you know, it's, it's um, vain and bad to think that you, you can study a country without talking to the local people who are also studying their own country. Uh, one of the themes of uh, the Ferris Center uh, this semester is the Iraq War, mm-hmm. and uh, trying to link that to the role of intellectuals mm-hmm. and scholars. Uh, with with, uh, with hindsight, uh, what's what's your kind of uh, assessment of uh, the role, positive or negative, played by by Middle Eastern scholars in the run up to the to the Iraq War? Well, some of it is absolutely disreputable. It was clear that there was a gentleman called Avram Udovich at Princeton who was got Bernard Lewis over to America after 1970 to give just this kind of advice. You know, Saddam Hussein is Hitler, easy peasy, we'll invade in 10 days, it'll all be over. I mean, these, this, is, this is absolutely disgraceful. Um, I mean, my contribution to this was to tell anybody, but of course, we were all, the people who said don't invade Iraq because it'll lead to no good were frozen out immediately. Mm. We got nowhere near policy makers. Um, but, uh, you know, it was clear it was going to be resisted and this, that and the other. And now, um, it's interesting, my friend Joseph Sassoon, who studies these things, who was born in Baghdad, you know, things actually weren't so bad under Saddam Hussein. If you were a woman, it was actually quite good because he believed in a kind of Stalinist way. As Stalin said, I'm going to liberate women. It's, of course, male vanity that thinks that you can go around liberating women. But he did send lots and lots of Iraqi women on public health courses and so on. 
you know, so it depends who you were and mm. and at what stage. I think you know things got worse when the war with the with, with Iran began and so on. So you, know, you have to keep coming back and as archives become open and as you talk. You know, I think Joseph Sassoon goes around talking to very old men as a way of trying to understand patterns of history and so on. The way that you know all history is also biographical in some kind of way, that everybody has a story to tell which is of interest that will throw light on what is going on. I think that's that would be my way of thinking about all that. But the Iraq I mean I'm glad you brought up Iraq because I mean that was clearly a disgrace. It was clearly not going to work. It was clearly going to lead to there were enough widows in Afghanistan, I remember, whose husbands had been killed by both sides in Afghanistan, by the Russians and then by people invading Afghanistan. If I have any notion about how to help the Middle East, it would be to reduce the number of widows of whose husbands are killed in these stupid activities that invasions and occupations and so on. It's not worth it. Yes, yes, please. Yes. I think there are different kinds of Middle East because some people, when they talk about the Middle East, it's the geography. Some people talk about Middle East as yeah. conflicts that includes Afghanistan and sometimes goes even beyond yes. Pakistan, Central Asia, and that they kind of combine. <coughs> excuse me, all of that together to talk about a co protracted conflict, conflict in hmm. region rather than a geography. That was. My first question, and second of all, is there a big difference between the Arab-speaking Middle East and the non-Arab-speaking Middle East? Mm -hmm. right. yeah. Yes, I mean, I think, the, to answer the first question, there isn't a Middle East. You have to begin by saying, this is my Middle East, because there is sufficient, you know, nobody quite knows. You, so you have, to, you have to know what you're talking about. And... I think there is a diff I try and make a difference between three things that are generally called Middle East. One is North Africa, where you have boundaries, state systems. You know, it's a more regular kind of place, North Africa, and I would include Egypt in North Africa. Then you have the Fertile Crescent, which is much more disputed because it doesn't have a set of accepted boundaries and accepted this and that. It hasn't settled down after the colonial period yet to 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 stability and then you have the Gulf of course which is a completely different place and flushed with money and an extremely unpleasant place as far as I'm concerned but anyway <laughs> it's part of the Middle East and it has lots of money and the World Cup is going to be in Qatar and football and all that kind of stuff so I have to think about the Gulf so that's how I think about it but I, all, all I would say is you know when you're talking about the Middle East it is required of you to say what it means and no, I would talk about the Arab world in three places, and then it has it has three neighbours, non non Arab neighbours: Turkey, Iran, and and Israel. And then you have to fit them in. I mean, they're obviously not Arab, and they don't, you know they're different in some kinds of ways, but they are part of what goes on. They have enormous influence. Yeah. Just yeah. Israel, Iran, Turkey, and sometimes other countries that are lumped into the Middle East, they mm. show different characteristics in terms of how they approach a conflict and how they, they, they deal with big issues. And also, they're, they're different. They're Turks, they're Arabs, they're mm. Israelis. Yeah. While the rest of the Middle East, in that is, apart from the conflict, there's an identity that has been uh, keeping them together, so... You mean, that, well, there is an Arab identity, but there aren't many Arab nationalists around anymore. The place used to be full of them in NASA time, but... Uh, but can I do a follow-up yeah, sure, on this? Sure. Um, I think it was Larry Diamond who did this study on, on uh, uh, democracy in the Islamic mm. world, and he found that the real deficit is mainly in the Arab countries, that mm. in, in, in other, in non-Arab Islamic countries, it's the, the democracy, democracy is sort of more functional in mm -hmm. like Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, India, Pakistan, well, Pakistan, mm -hmm. but, but uh, 
uh, still it's it's more functional than uh, more fun they have a more functioning democratic system than in in the, in the Arab countries is is that a how how can we explain such a well I don't I I mean I think democracy is very difficult I don't think there's much democracy in Black Africa you know I don't think there's much democracy in the world or Latin it's it's a very difficult thing to sustain and manage so. You know, it's not some curse of the Arabs that they happen to be particularly bad about that. And insofar as there is trouble in the Middle East, it seems to me you have to think. First, they're the nearest third world neighbor to, 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 to Western Europe. So the Mediterranean is rather like the Rio Grande. It's you know, Rio Grande. It's like the relations that Trump has exposed between Mexico and Texas. And these, this is obviously, these produce special conditions. And on the whole, the people who live in Mexico would prefer to live in Texas if they can get in, and so on and so on.